You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today, I am joined by Dr. Chris Gilliard, who is a writer, professor, and speaker, and his scholarship concentrates on digital privacy, surveillance, and the intersections of race, class, and technology. He's an advocate for critical and equity-focused approaches to tech and education, and his ideas have been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wired Magazine, the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and Vice Magazine. He's a Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center Visiting Research Fellow, a member of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry Scholars Council, and a member of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project Community Advisory Board. So interestingly, this is my first time to actually see or talk to Chris. He's someone that I follow on Twitter, and I've followed his blog, and I'm really super excited about having him here today to talk about White Christmas. So welcome, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me, Lee. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. (laughs) Okay, great. What I do at the beginning of each of these episodes is ask the guests to, if they wouldn't mind, go ahead and summarize the episode. So again, for listeners, this episode, like all episodes, will include spoilers. So if if you have not yet seen White Christmas, press pause, go watch it, and then come back to this excellent conversation. But Chris, can you summarize White Christmas? It's a little difficult. John Hamm plays a character named Matt, who's something of a, a con man, but also is works in some kind of AI firm where he, to put it politely, trains AI. And But that's his day job and his night job. He's, how would I describe it? He's a bro that teaches other bros how to get women. Oh my God, that is literally the best description. (laughs) It's like a combination of con man and toxic masculinity trainer. (laughs) And also surveils, they're part of a group that surveils this process and exploits the women who are picked up. And eventually Ham gets caught and he has to, in order to strike a deal with something like the district attorney, needs to elicit a confession from someone else who's committed a crime or is suspected of committing a crime. And and we go on from there. So there is another significant character in White Christmas, which is this guy Potter. Mm -hmm. And the episode opens with them both, it appears, trapped in this kind of cabin in the snowy woods where they have been for some time. And we don't really know why they're there or what they're doing. But tell that's really the main story of White Christmas. So, yeah, so how does that work out? So Potter is he's was in a relationship, and so his partner becomes pregnant. Who and he thinks at the time it's that she is pregnant with his child. And the big reveal later on, spoiler, is that <laughs> the child is not his. But he only finds that out much later on in the episode. But he gets very angry. They have uh, some kind of dispute. He gets very angry and she blocks him, which in this episode, there's a a technology that's referred to as Zed Eyes, which enables people to do um, a variety of things with sensory input. One of them is to block people, which 
renders them into this amorphous blob. And interestingly enough, even though it's called Zed Eyes, you're also not able to, you're able to hear that they're saying something, but it blocks what they're saying from anyone who's, so if, if I were to block you, Lee, yes. I could see a blob and know that you're speaking, but I would have no idea that it was you speaking. So she right. blocks and moves away and he stalks her for the rest of the episode, essentially, and stalks her and the child. Yeah, and then he ends up, after all of these years following her, hoping to catch a glimpse of another spoiler, the child that he believes is his, he finally does see, actually, she dies. She dies in a kind of tragic car accident. And he thinks, he knows now that he'll be able to go see his child. And when he does see it, he realizes that his wife had an affair with his best friend and they had a child. And in a series of unfortunate <laughs> accidents, maybe not accidents, uh, he ends up killing the grandfather uh, who was caretaking the child and then leaving the child there to die on her own. So the story of Matt and Potter in this house is that Matt is there to elicit a confession from Potter. Although but Potter does not know that. Potter does not know this. The other thing is, I'm sorry, but this is actually Potter. <laughs> right. Okay. So that, yeah. So Potter does not know this. And also we don't know, the viewers don't know until the very end that both Potter and what's the other guy's name? Matt. Matt. Yeah. yeah. Both Matt and Potter are actually just cookies. So if you're familiar with the Black Mirror series already, that cookies are these kind of digital copies of our consciousnesses. They show up in several of the episodes. In this one, they're put into a virtual space or a digital space where, you know, again, they believe that they are having real experiences, but in fact, their bodies are in real meat space, not in this cabin. Potter is actually in jail. He's been arrested, but has yet been convicted for this crime. They've tried to solicit a confession from him, but he won't admit to it. And of course, Matt is, as you say, a snitch. He's working for the DA's office, trying to get this. It's a sort of jailhouse snitch, but the jailhouse is entirely virtual here. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that you've done a lot of work on what you call digital redlining. And so I imagine that this episode is particularly interesting to you. So before we talk about this episode, could you just explain what you mean by digital redlining? Elevator pitch or longer explanation? We got all day. and I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> No, we don't have all day. We have an hour and 45 minutes. Let me just give a, a tiny bit of background. So I, I live in, in Detroit. I grew up in Detroit. And it is one of the places where it's most visible. The vestiges of discriminatory housing and banking policy and environmental policy, for that matter, um, yeah. are, are very apparent if you know the city. So much so that on one in some areas, one side of the street that is defined as Detroit has certain kinds of roads and services. And the other side of the street, which might be a Ferndale or a Gross Point or something like that, has another kind of road conditions and services. And they're very different from one another. And you can see that if you look at that, those are like remnants of redlining. And so one of the things I talk about in my work is what I tend to call digital redlining, which are ways in which technology policies, practices, pedagogy, investment decisions 
the way those reinforce class and race barriers and discriminate against marginalized groups. And that reading and thinking about that and thinking about with my students has led me to a lot of other areas like incarceration, for instance, where these policies or the effects of these policies and decisions are also very much at play and very visible. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Yeah, I'm in Memphis and we have a lot of the same dynamics here. It's a predominantly Black city. It's also a fairly impoverished city. It also, by the way, you may know this since you work on this stuff, but is the first city to introduce Blue Crush, which was the very early predictive policing program. I did not know that. Yes. And there still are. So people who are in Memphis now, we know the blue brush cameras. They're everywhere. They're hard to miss. But yeah, I've been really interested also in these predictive policing programs, the compass algorithms that are used for setting bail and sentences, all of which we know are deeply flawed algorithmic assessment tools, risk assessment tools, but also have this tendency to work in feedback loops, right? The most obvious is in the predictive policing. They say, we're going to send more police to high crime areas, but if you send more police to any area, there's going to be more arrests where there are more police, right? And so then when you feed the stats into the, the next month, where do we send the police? We send them back to where there's the most crime. It is something that I think is a, a hugely uh, you know, important topic to talk about. Now, in the framework of this particular episode, right, we've got, it's hard for me to even say this because things like predictive poli- you know, predictive policing and sentencing algorithms or bail setting algorithms are so devastating already, but we've got something even worse here. In yeah, this and I'm really... One of the things I'm I'm really interested in, and I think the episode speaks to, is how people envision incarceration. Oh, okay, uh, in yeah. And what would be like more humane versions of incarceration? Because so I've just been reading a lot lately about. I just read something the other day about electronic ankle monitors. Mm-hmm. You know? And again, this is like a, a thing that disproportionately affects black and brown folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say uh, effects is like a very harmless word so it's not the right word but it's the one that came to mind and uh, so yeah the what incarceration looks like or or what criminal justice looks like in uh, white christmas is yeah really disturbing and harmful it's an interesting question so i think that You could imagine some people who might say that this, if I could pull a copy of your consciousness out of your brain and punish that consciousness in a virtual prison or something like that, wouldn't that be more humane? But of course, what we see in this episode is that just because one doesn't have a body, like is incapable of we're not, I'm not even sure they are incapable of feeling physical pain, but they're certainly able to be psychologically tortured. So one of the yeah. things that happens is they slow time down so that they experience, for example, a minute as a year. And John Ham's character, Matt, actually punishes one of these cookies 
in this way, you know, who this cookie is like not adjusting well to being a cookie. And, he, and so he says, I'm just, I'll just leave you alone and effectively puts her in solitary confinement for six months. Now we know in real life, IRL, what solitary confinement does to a person. Yeah. Is yeah. It- it's identified as torture, right? Yeah. Confinement is torture. And the, the episode did not get into this, but I'm assuming that they have the ability to re-implant the cookie. And what I mean by that is, this may be too much of the weeds like this. But <laughs> So they implant a cookie where it absorbs the consciousness, not absorbs, but mimics the consciousness of a person. And then they take it out. And then they can coerce the cookie. They can get information from the cookie. They can torture the cookie, things like that. As far as I know, so in the way that the episode reveals, the individual doesn't feel that once they've the cookie's been removed. But if I follow the logic of the show, you would be able to, there would be a way, at least in my understanding, to re-implant it so that it, the individual would feel what the cookie felt. Otherwise, see, would it be punishment? See, that's interesting to me because I think the moment the cookie is removed from mm-hmm. the sort of origin consciousness, yeah, it become it, it effectively becomes a different person. Right? It's like a copy of you, but now it's having its own experiences, it's collecting its own memories. And so yeah. to me, it seems like it wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to put it back in because Uh you couldn't have sort of two consciousnesses with two memories and two sets of experiences in one consciousness. Yeah. But, but then the question, but then the question is, would there be any point in torturing? Let's say I committed a crime. You want to punish me severely, but not appear cruel and unusual to the public. And instead, what you're going to do is you're going to take out this cookie and you're going to punish it for, I don't know, 10,000 years or something. It seems to me that is not punishing me because I'm still going to, even if you just lock me up in jail for the rest of my life, that's the experience I'm going to have. I'm not going to have the experience of the cookie who's being tortured. Yeah, that doesn't seem to me to be the worrisome thing about this technology. To me, the worrisome thing about this technology is that is exactly what happens in the episode, which is that cookie me might confess to something that IRL me refuses to confess to. Yeah. So that I'm I'm forced to, in a way, betray myself. Mm-hmm. That seems to me the greatest violation. And so we've seen some analogs of this, right? So there's, I'm thinking about a recent art project I saw that uses deep fakes of pretty odious individuals like tech barons and politicians to have them confess to their bad acts. So having someone like Zuckerberg or certain recently ousted politicians confessing to the things that they've done as a deep fake. And we have some analogs already starting to develop, but the, and this does get, and this is not my specialty, but it does get into some philosophical questions about if, would there be, is it possible to create a copy of you? Is it you? And if it, if it confesses to something or expresses some feeling or memory, is it confessing to 
your memory or its own memory so these are all like really (laughs) (laughs) really deep questions that and and further even given what we know about how these systems tend to work right like how well would it would it effectively reproduce copies of without cultural bias like we know that doesn't happen right (laughs) would technology would that technology be sufficiently advanced in order to do that and so that again like hyper speculative but right would a cookie of a black person be as accurate as a cookie of a white person to be like really explicit about it yeah that actually i think is an interesting question how whether or not whatever the copying technology is whether or not it could be sufficiently sophisticated to copy all consciousnesses in, in, in the same, at, you know, to the same level of completion. Yeah. But I want to go back to something that you just said, which is if the copy of the person is not the same as the person, which we know it's not because just sticking with the episode that they're trying to get the cookie version of Potter to confess so that they can punish the real life Potter. Mm-hmm. So if it is the case that, like, it, it, it wouldn't do any good to punish the cookie version of me. This might be a whole different philosophical question. What is the point of punishment? <laughs> but if, it, presumably it wouldn't do any good to punish the cookie version of me. And that doesn't matter whether you think ultimately punishment is about whatever reform, or mm-hmm. if punishment is just about inflicting suffering on someone who's done wrong. It doesn't really matter. Neither of those things would happen to the real me if you just punish the cookie me. But I wonder whether or not you can imagine if this technology were possible, that there might be some reason to punish the cookies of black and brown people for just make people feel better. Right. Make white people feel better. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Again, if we just take the text of the show, the people who are punishing the cookies take a very perverse pleasure in it. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, John Hamm's character, takes a, a little bit of pleasure in it, or at least does not. If he doesn't derive pleasure, it doesn't bother him at all. But in the end of the episode or near the end, the two police officers or law enforcement of some sort are going away for the Christmas weekend and they decide to punish the cookie with solitary confinement of, I think a thousand years. Yeah. And it's a joke to them. And so again, it's hard to talk about these without getting into some pretty deep uh, levels, but it does bring about the question of what, of who punishment is for, right? Like, so their hope does not seem to be to rehabilitate the cookie. That's America, man. (laughs) Like, we're not trying to anyone. No, I don't think anyone believes that our sort of incarceration industrial complex is designed for reformation. I don't think anyone thinks that's true. And, And we do have, not only is it a business, it's profitable for a lot of people It's profitable for a few people, for a lot of people to be incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's also, let's admit it's entertainment too. There are whole television channels that are like inside the prisons or court TV or whatever. And this actually reminds me of that other Black Mirror episode, White Bear, where you have punishment as spectacle, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it's for. 
And so maybe we could imagine that this kind of a thing would take off on its own, right? That there would be a whole sort of entertainment industry, but a whole spectacle industry that's just about punishing people, but it's not really people. And the reason I was thinking about that is because of the thing that you said about having onerous public or people public figures that we don't creating deep fakes where they admit to what what they've done wrong wouldn't this kind of be a version of that we're never going to get donald trump to you know appear on screen in an interview and be like i fucked it up up." (laughs) right Uh, but there are a lot of people who i think would enjoy watching whoever trump zuckerberg elon musk of people watch this kind of restoral of justice, however that looks in different people's minds, play out, but not on real bodies. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting, what seems like a throwaway line, but I think it's a carefully crafted episode, so it's probably not. There's an interesting (laughs) uh, line by Ham's character when he talks about disciplining the cookies, and he says, you have to make sure you give them enough discipline, but not too much. Because then you break them and they're only good for, say, video, selling them to video game makers. Yeah. Presumably there's this other market for broken cookies who are fodder for shooters in video games and things like that. And so that brings a whole nother aspect to what would it look like to have simulacra or doppelgangers of people populating video games where you get to punish them repeatedly all the time in in whatever kind of manner the game allows that's pretty dark right like it is (laughs) it is dark but it's dark if you assume that you and i are living in the real world right now and this is not just all the simulation (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's right yeah someone could be doing that to all of us 2020 feels a little like that i'm not gonna lie (laughs) but do you think that is that something that is worrisome to you do you think that because i could imagine a scenario in which we all play out our revenge fantasies on these cookies Hmm. and we don't actually need all of the disciplinary institutions that we are so attached to in our society right now yeah i can't help but think again of the analog And I I think what this episode misses, or again, like perhaps not willing to go that dark, but the analog of deep fakes. And so while most people tended to be worried about deep fakes and the ways that it would promote or enable disinformation and misinformation, a lot of people overlooked were its uses in pornography. Well, that's its origin. Yeah. 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 And the way that it is being used to create, I, there's not a, I'm struggling with the right way to say this, but to create non-consensual sexualized imagery of people based just on, say, a picture of their face. Mm-hmm. And in the way that Black Mirror is just like five minutes ahead, like we already have some of these things in a way that enables people to play out some really despicable behavior on people who in no way consented to that vert copies of them versions of them yeah yeah i wonder if though we will think of cookies 
if this technology, cookie technology, were possible, mm-hmm. I wonder if we would think of, for example, the cookie version of Chris as fake in the same way that I would think of a digitally manipulated video or image of you as fake. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's not Chris because it's that's a that's an imposter or that's a, a simulacrum or whatever. Yeah. Whereas it does seem like that because we're not just talking about the image, we're talking about the consciousness, the the self or the whatever soul, if you believe in those sorts of things. We might say that really is him. Don't you think? Yeah, I don't know because it... I don't know the answer to that. I keep coming back to notions of not necessarily what it does to the cookie, but what it does to the individual who's interacting with the cookie. So it's hard with the information I'm I'm given in the show. But again, like these raises of questions, I don't know the answer to. What are feelings? Do cookies have feelings? Right. Because generally that seems to be a metric for how we treat beings who are not us. That tends to be the metric, which is why it's so important to dehumanize other beings when there's war and conflict and enslavement and things like that. So does a cookie have feelings? I I don't know the answer. (laughs) Are feelings just code? We could ask the same thing of one another, right? Our feelings, we don't know what feelings are either. And they could just be chemical or biological or neurological codes that we just haven't figured out yet, but they could be that well organized. We don't know that. I suppose my question to you would be if there were a a cookie, Chris, Mm -hmm. you IRL, Chris be worried about him. Would you want to ensure that he's not mistreated? I would because in the episode, the cookie has to be coerced into doing something so it's not doing it out of whatever version of free will exists it has to be tortured in order to be disciplined into doing a a task so inherently there's not there's no way i could accept that like so i'm a gamer right like i wouldn't play a video game where i had to torture someone and i don't think the video game characters have feelings or are, are real in that sense. So I can never, there's never, I can't imagine a scenario where someone would lay out, here's how we create your smart home, Chris. We um, create a digital doppelganger of you by implanting it in your head. We extract it, torture it until it complies, and then it will act in your on your behalf. Just so, so you lay that out. <laughs> there's no chance I would agree to that. Okay, hold on, though. Let me construct for you a scenario in which I think you might. (laughs) Okay, let's imagine I am a frothing-at-the-mouth racist, white supremacist racist, right? Mm -hmm. However, there's this new technology. My whole family's concerned about me. My friends are concerned about me. And there's this new technology that allows them to create this copy of my consciousness, remove it, train it not to be racist and then have it train me right (laughs) yeah 
So in the same way that the character in White Christmas is Cookie makes her toast and knows what music she likes to listen to when they wake up, my Cookie's job is to actually make me a better person. Yeah. Well, oh gosh. This assumes that the person would want to be made better, but also the in this scenario, so I think it's very hard, I would probably argue impossible, to create an ethical being through unethical means. Mm-hmm. So you, what you did is you subbed out the word train for torture. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good, good catch. <laughs> <laughs> so if we could train it, if there is a way to convince it through ethical means to behave that there was a better way that's what that's a way of doing things i could wrap my head around but that most of the ways of disciplining cookies in the show is through yeah means that or and people because we haven't even gotten to the other technology of blocking people we yeah i do want to talk about that. that but most of the ways of training people or cookies are very harsh and it in many cases extend well into what the definition of torture is. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that you're right that if in real life, me doesn't want to not be racist, that the only way to make that happen to me is through some kind of morally problematic coercion. Mm -hmm. Right. First torturing and coercing my cookie consciousness and then having that, cookie consciousness coerce me in ways that yeah and i suppose the real question there is can you can you really morally educate yourself or morally improve yourself if it involves all of that all Mm. of that kind of torture and coercion but you know well we could pick things that i do that are terrible that i want to change and for whatever reason couldn't or have not been able to bring myself to change yeah, uh, but I might want to do, you know, whatever, quit smoking or to, I don't know, be less nervous around other people. Neither of those things are things I'm, you know, what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, yeah. Think of ways that, or here's a weirdly controversial example. A lot of there's some studies that show that pedophiles understand, like some pedophiles understand that the the desires that they feel are anathema in the culture that these acts are illegal and they don't want to feel the way that they do. And so unlike the racist who doesn't not want to be racist, right? The pedophile might want to be retrained, but then that gets very, you know, sketchy because then it's already going to train everybody's sexual desires. Right. right. Yeah. 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 But do you want to talk about blocking? I love this part. Yeah, I do think that this is one of the episodes that takes something that is a phenomenon, a practice in our present day lives Mm -hmm. and gives us a futuristic image of it that is really cool. And that really brings out the implications of what it is that we do all the time when we block people, which is that blocking is a 
kind of fundamentally antisocial activity. It's like you you are not no longer a part of my world. Like you are cast out. So yeah, what did you think? So I'm interested because I don't think. So I I wonder who gets what from blocking, right? So in the show, just to reiterate, if you uh, block someone, you see a, a human shaped you silhouette. Know, uh, yes that's filled with kind of like white noise and you can see their movements but not identify features but also the words they're saying don't come out as words it just comes out as noise and i thought like how so there's two thing ways i I was thinking about that what is the benefit for the person being blocked and what is the effect on the person who is blocked the one the thing that was more obvious to me is that and this touches on what i had mentioned earlier about dehumanization right if so in john ham's case he couldn't see his punishment at the end so matt his punishment at the end was that he was blocked by everyone yeah yeah and i thought Again, it's a, it is, I mean, that level of isolation, right? It's a kind of isolation that most of us have not experienced, maybe up until March. But we know <laughs> the harmful effects that it has on people to have no social contact. Mm-hmm. So if a person had exhibited some type of antisocial behavior or some behavior that had broken the law, it feels like the exact wrong thing to do to them would be to say that now you can have no contact with anyone at all you're not you're no longer recognized as a human by society i wonder how it doesn't seem like that would in any way coerce them to be a better human because they don't then have the ability to interact with people but i so even but the pair but thinking about blocking say like on twitter like i i pretty liberally block people on twitter because i feel like people who there are lots of fear of bad actors Or even people who I think don't consider themselves bad actors, but are reply guys or what have you. And I don't think of it as antisocial necessarily. I think of it as preservational in that the reason I'm blocking them is not because I I don't seek any interaction. I just don't seek their interaction or the way that they have chosen to interact with me. But I don't know. So bringing that into a phys- the physical world and what that would mean for party the blocker or the blocky, I think is a really interesting but also disturbing question. Okay, but serious question. Nobody who blocks thinks that what they're doing is antisocial. Yeah. Right? Like everyone who blocks justifies it in their own mind by describing the person being blocked as being antisocial in some way. Uh Um, Yeah. And it seems to me that's actually what's the most worrisome about it, both as an actual activity that we do. And also symbolically is like taking it as a symbolically, like the way that we understand how we draw the boundaries of our world, because I can say I can say I'm not being antisocial when I block a reply guy. Like he's just annoying or he's Mm -hmm. rude or he's racist or whatever. Yeah. But I am 
I am being antisocial by sort of casting him out of my field of vision, right, on Twitter. And how is that any different than saying, I don't have any, I don't have anything against the people on, who live on the other side of the tracks, but I'm not living in that neighborhood. Yeah. Right? Well, I or think all right, you know, important difference. A very okay. Important okay. Difference. So, okay. And this is, I, th- I think something that comes up in all different, there are people who, you know, this, I don't want this, this is, a, I'm trying to frame this in a way that isn't, doesn't seem idealistic. Right. Cause that's not me. Uh, but, <laughs> the, in order for us to live in in a society, there needs to be like some some sort of pact about like that we live by certain agreements or rules and that. So what I'm trying to say is there are people who don't think I should exist or I should have the right to vote or or that there are people who think my family is an abomination, right? Mm-hmm. So to exclude those people from my from my sphere is not being antisocial. It's saving my life. Like I can't, nor should it be upon me to to rehabilitate them or help them or explain to them, argue that I'm human, anything like that. So there are there are instances where you might say, so it's different to say, I block this person because I don't like something they were wearing. Or I blocked this person because they went to a school I didn't like or something like that. Like, that's a thing. I don't do that. That's not the kind of blocking I'm talking about. I would block someone who, you know, with certain kind of political leanings or with certain someone who's openly racist, right? That isn't because to me, and I don't have an ideal way to say this, but they've already violated the agreement that we're going to have if we're going to, if there's going to be peace, which is to say, which is to look at me or my family or people I love or the community I live in and say, those things don't have the right to exist. So the initial antisocial act was not me blocking them. It was them saying that the things I'm part of don't have the right to exist. I think that's fair. And I think that like, Speaking as a female on Twitter, right? Like you can't be you can't be an educated female on Twitter for more than five seconds without somebody telling you how quickly you should be raped and murdered. Uh, But and I do think that it's fair to say there's a kind of moral justification to my blocking that person because they're being antisocial, and also it's for my own preservation. I think Mm -hmm. that's totally fair. Yeah. But I think that I'd still have to say that the activity of carving someone out of what I recognize as the social world is still an antisocial activity, even if it even so. Yeah, 100% agree with you. There's a social contract and we have to decide on what the rules are and play by the rules. And the people who don't play by the rules, my rules Right? or the rules that me and my people agree to, yeah. they don't get to play. But I have to, it seems to me, I still have to recognize that that's what I'm doing, right? That I, that it is, there is something about this. And I, here's why I'm saying, here's why I'm trying to push hard on this point. Yeah. is because it worries me a lot 
to think about how this kind of technology is going to be used in the future. Because I think that you and I would both agree that there's a difference between punching up and punching down, Mm -hmm. right? Like we all agree, like it's not cool. It's totally cool to punch up. It's not cool to punch down. But it seems like this is exactly the kind of technology that would only be used to punch down, right? To, Mm -hmm. to, as you say, it would be the new, the newest kind of weapon of digital redlining, of finding a way for already marginalized groups to have even less access to the kinds of digital tools that would make them capable of participating in a society. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super interesting. I, if we all had Z eyes, would I block Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos? (laughs) Yeah, of course I would, but it wouldn't matter at all. (laughs) I'm never going to encounter them. And we do see that the trajectory of most of these technologies is that in the harms are disproportionately deployed against vulnerable people and populations. So I don't disagree with that at all. And particularly with incarceration or e-carceration or whatever we'd call this next version of it, e-carceration 2.0. Yeah. And I don't know that, I don't know the answer to that. Because I am, that's a real concern, but I don't, I would push back by saying, I don't think those two things are, I would align them differently. That the the people I'm talking about who I would block, and again, this gets into some real sort of what's the first utterance talk, but who, who commits the first antisocial act? And I do think that's important. That might be a way to think about it. So it's a really difficult question. I think that's fair. I think my worry is that we've already seen it over the last eight, you know, years, eight, 12 years, is that because people can more or less remove ideas and people that are that are different from them or that they disagree with, or in some cases that are threatening them or whatever from their kind of digital view entirely, Mm -hmm. we've seen really the development of these kind of parallel realities, multiple parallel realities, even in the United States. And you could clearly easily imagine if this technology were available, right? People, some people would live in very sparsely populated worlds, Right. Yeah. Or like, like actual echo chambers mm-hmm. where, you know, anyone, any, so anyone who disagrees with them, anyone who they don't like, anyone who they find potentially threatening or offensive or whatever would just not exist in their world. Yeah. And that is just to bring it full circle back to the whole sort of deep fake question. This yeah. is the real concern is wh- whether or not we're technologically enabling the dissolution of a kind of shared reality, a shared society altogether. And it does seem to me that blocking is the first step to that. Yeah. I don't know. I think that horse is well out of the barn. (laughs) (laughs) If you, if we just think about what's going on now in terms of the election. uh, Right. If you've ever had a look at the Facebook page of someone who's a different political leanings than you or the emails that some of them get. And things like that. And I don't think this is evenly distributed, right? Like, I'm pretty well aware of, say, like a transphobic argument. I know what their argument is. 
Mm-hmm. I just think it's really wrong. Right? Like, and I do think that in terms of like marginalized people don't have, don't actually have the ability to not be aware of the positionality of white supremacists. Like I actually have to know these things because they are, they enable me to interact in the world in a slightly more safe manner. So then I can know where I can go and, and what I can do and what time I can go and places I shouldn't go and like people I should and shouldn't talk to and all these different things. That power flow almost always goes one way. So that, and then again, like this is, I don't think this is only true for me. I think that if you are, if you are a group of part of a, a member of a group or an individual who is in some way marginalized in society, you have to develop coping mechanisms for going about your day in ways that make you more safe. And part of that is knowing who is safe and where is safe in ways that other people don't have to. And so I do think you're right that that those mechanisms would be used to further entrench some of the things that we see already. But this is sort of my argument altogether about a lot of this tech is not that almost none of it is enabling new practices. It's just upping the scale and scope of the practices that have historically existed. So, 100% agree. Yeah. At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. This is the real question, right? Is that none of this is, you know, what we're seeing in Black Mirror is nothing new. It's just a kind of hyperbolized, you know, vision of, you know, what we should already see happening. Yeah. When we I agree with you also that like the horses are out of the barn and we're not getting them back. We're not going to be able to unring that bell. It does seem like right now, the real sort of question has to be, how do we get out ahead of it in terms of regulation? Or And I think this is actually the question that we're having right now. Who gets to ban people entirely from platforms, like mm-hmm. permanently block them? Who gets to make those decisions? What are the terms and conditions of those decisions? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's now commonly called e-carceration? <laughs> I, I do want to, I mean, with the holidays coming up, and I, I do think this technology, there's one other thing I would like to say about this blocking thing, right? Which is that I, I think part of the reason, and feel free to push back as much as you want, but I, I feel like part of the reason we are where we are as a society is that there hasn't been enough strong pushback against people who are antisocial. And so what I mean by that is whether or not, let me be explicit. So I don't know. I'm pretty sure that in different parts of our history that someone walking down the street with a Nazi flag would have feared for their life, that they might have gotten the shit kicked out of them, or maybe worse. And I actually think that's a better, we're, that's a better society. <laughs> You'll notice the total lack of pushback here. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that's a better society. Yeah. Because 
you want to talk about the paradox of tolerance or, or however you want to think about it. But there are things that not only should be seen as socially unacceptable, but should have like immediate and strong pushback. Because if you don't, like you would get to where we are now. Yeah. You know? And of course, that's like a simplified version. There's other reasons for the, where we are now. But I think that's an aspect of it. And yeah, so I think about some of that blocking, right? So I think about every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, there's stories about how to deal with your racist uncle. I actually don't have that problem. Because if I had a racist <laughs> uncle, I would not talk to him. I would block him. He would not be invited. And where he was, I wouldn't be, right? Like that, I think more people should do that. So I actually think is that, because I'm not, again, the civil conversation about whether or not I should exist or my family should exist or my community should exist. The civil conversation doesn't exist. Like I'm, people shouldn't have to argue for their existence. And so to that extent, like, I think like that blocking technology as posited in the show is interesting, right? Like how to deal with your racist uncle, pretend he doesn't exist. right? <laughs> like, yeah. Maybe it will be an ideal technology for the holidays. I'm actually really glad to hear you say that because I do agree with you that I also think that there are certain lines that once they're crossed with me, I think I just don't owe, I just don't owe you my time and attention anymore. And there, and I also agree that, yeah, we have gotten really lazy about sanctioning, collectively sanctioning antisocial behavior, not in the, not only in the normal ways, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, these sorts of big systemic problems that we have, but also smaller things like people, like one of my kind of pet peeves is this, is this sort of both sidesism that seems to have run rampant and that you think everybody, like no one has a, a position anymore. And like, that's a virtue in itself is like just to ride the fence. And that seems to me also less obvious, but still variation on be, on antisocial behavior. Yeah. I mean, um, I, 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 no, I think it's why uh, journalism is in so many ways ill-equipped <laughs> to deal with the times we're in because they have to yeah. treat things as, well, they feel Right. I don't think they have to. Yeah. So long they've they've acted as if they have to treat things that are illegitimate as legitimate. That if one side says the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and the other side. And here from the other side. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That it's a glowing ball of cheese that melts every night and reforms (laughs) that you just have to say, oh, both sides have opinions about the sun, you know. Yeah. And the thing is that I do think that part of the reason that everyone, so not, I'm not talking about professional journalists, but just like regular people on Twitter or regular people on social media feel this obligation to even acknowledge a side that they would in any other circumstance be like, that is batshit crazy. You know, in any other circumstance, they feel like they have to acknowledge a side because they're so, people are so afraid of taking a position publicly because the, the, there are consequences to taking a position publicly, which are so a lot of there, a whole bunch of people are probably going to push back. 
But it seems to me that is healthy social behavior is to understand that when you take a position, that it's likely that there are going to be consequences to the things that you say and the things that you do and the things that you believe. And hopefully you can defend them when somebody asks you about them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if you can't, you change your position. (laughs) One one would hope. (laughs) Yeah. This is why I do worry about this blocking. I do worry that sometimes people use blocking as a kind of way of avoiding challenging conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think everyone is entitled to be to engagement or anything like that, but I don't know. So I was asking you before we went off on this tangent, if you wanted to talk a little bit about the, like how we might get ahead of regulating how people get banned from platform. I mean, this has been a big discussion in the last six months. Should Zuck and Jack and those, those guys have total control over who is even allowed on a platform or not? Yeah. I have some strong feelings about this. I think you know that. I yeah. mean, but I'll just be explicit, right? Like, I actually don't think Facebook should exist. I don't think that the way it exists right now, I think the way it exists right now is incompatible with democracy, but also is clearly you a, a favorite tool of authoritarian governments across the world. And they act very irresponsibly in that they go into countries, they don't have a plan, they don't often have moderators who speak the language or the variety of dialects. They go in with this simplistic notion that to connect people, right, like that their stated mission to connect people is in itself a good, which it is not, because you are, by definition, com- connecting people who want to see pictures of their grandchildren with the kids but also you're connecting people who are organizing militias and death squads to each other. Facebook's own research says that they promote this, that a lot of the people who join extremist groups were recommended to those groups by Facebook. So I, I think that in the way it exists now, it's actually incompatible with a free and just society. So I think some of those questions about deplatforming people and stuff like that are important. But I, whenever I talk about Facebook, I got to get this out of the way. Like, I actually don't think it should exist. I don't think the way it operates now on the scale that it operates is compatible with a, yeah, an equitable society. So it sounds just beneath the surface of what you're saying about Facebook is that you think there should be, I'm using this like symbolically, but like you think there should be more borders, more lines, more kind of divisions between what's inside and what's what's outside. So we shouldn't have this kind of no rules, everything goes connections, but that we should have more regulated kind of social stratification. Yeah, and the part of the problem though is that Facebook is able to go into places that don't have strong governments or strong democracies. They're able to go into places that don't have the internet where, and then Facebook becomes a de facto internet. And it brings a set of values with it that don't necessarily align with that particular society or culture. And, and again, I think even in places that supposedly do have strong democracies, it's proven to be a problem. 
whether we think about Europe or the UK or America, who all purportedly different places with strong democracies. And Facebook has proven to be quite a problem. And so there are other places that don't have have different structures or maybe more less established structures. And again, or again, like even places where there are places where Facebook is the internet. So that in itself is a problem. And I don't know. So if there, who someone's listening would, would say like, how would you accomplish that? This is just, I think it's important to speak out loud about that. Some technologies like shouldn't, simply shouldn't exist. Like, I actually think that's an important thing to say. Yeah, that's an interesting claim. I don't know that I would say that Facebook is a technology. I think that it is a, at present, and really for its entire history, a, a really sloppily and dangerously run mega company. And that, yeah, and that in its current form, it probably shouldn't exist. But I do think that there, that the sort of social network tech industry could be regulated in ways that it, it might could be salvaged. Because I don't think the idea of the platform or the social media platform in general is something that shouldn't exist. I don't agree with you there. Oh yeah, no, I don't. I, if I made it seem that way, I don't, I'm not saying that. Yeah. But I, I, as, as it's constituted now. Yeah. 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 No, that's, I think that I agree with you there. I, I think that the hard thing though, is that again, it's like trying to get the horses back in the barn. Some of the, these things are out there running and there's there's no alternative. There's no getting them back in the barn. And there's right now no alternative to Facebook. So we're recording this in November of 2020. And the sort of new, the very recent comp- hashtag leave Facebook competitor is Parlay, which is this hilarious, you know, this like hyper conservative kind of looks like a sort of Trumpist sanctuary, which is hilariously used the French word for speaking <laughs> as its <laughs> as its name. But yeah, nothing has nothing since Facebook has ever really competed with Facebook. So yeah, it's hard to imagine without a real sort of structural intervention, either real government oversight or a real kind of intervention at the level of tech corporations. I just don't see how Facebook doesn't just, half the people on Facebook are going to be dead in 10 years. So, yeah. I mean, like on face, they're going to be dead on Facebook. Yeah, gonna, cookies of them on Facebook. Yeah. And oh. I think that's the big, <laughs> I think that's the bigger concern, right? Is that what Facebook is doing right now is, just like Google, right, is training all of these AIs to get better and better at doing things that I'm not entirely convinced the people who are running the business plans for Facebook and Google and Twitter understand those things are. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to give them credit to say they don't understand what they're doing. I think that again i'm saying the people who are running the business side oh no no i wasn't i'm sorry i meant like some of the problems inherent with the the model itself oh yeah Um, i think people give zuckerberg a pass in terms of like he gets to be forever a child that he didn't finish harvard is (laughs) right as some slight where that he doesn't know what he's doing and he in my estimation like that is not the right way to think about it. My hopes for meaningful legislation are slim to none. 
because <laughs> as we were talking about people's bubbles, right? Dorsey and Zuckerberg were just before Congress not too long ago. Yeah. And there's this persistent myth that of this anti-conservative bias on Facebook. And there's no reputable study that supports this. Facebook's own metrics don't support it. Facebook, who the people they have in higher executive positions, many of them are staunch conservatives. Until we have, until, ha ha ha. Unless we have a government that can at least get on the same page about accurately representing and understanding what these companies do. The hope that there would be some meaningful intervention, at least my hope, is not very high. Yeah, it's funny in the last congressional hearings, the big tech hearings, one of the Republican senators was basically accusing Pushai, Sundar Pushai, the Google CEO, mm-hmm. of be- having a YouTube being an <laughs> anti-conservative platform. And you could just see it on his face. He was he was like, it's literally exactly the opposite. YouTube is the, it's really a kind of right-wing radicalization. <laughs> platform. And so he just just nodded and listened to the question. And he was like, actually, we have quite a bit of conservative content on our platform. It was really funny. You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, which is mostly a labor of love and is at present ad free. If you like what you hear, and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. That's patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. And now back to our conversation. So we're going to end here like we always do with these three questions, which I'm going to put to you right now and you can answer them, you know, all in a row when I get Uh done. So the first question is, what is the lesson that we should take away from White Christmas? And again, your lesson, not Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones' lesson, but what is mm-hmm. what do you think the lesson to take away from White Christmas is? The second question is, what bothers you the most or concerns you the most or disturbs you the most about this episode? And I think we've talked a lot about that already. Uh, and then the third and final question is, on a scale of one to 10, with one being a totally nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a perfect utopia, where does the world of White Christmas fall for you? Yeah. Okay. So what's the lesson? What I take from it is that we need to think deeply about how we understand punishment and how tech enables punishment and that technology, adding technology to the wheels of you know criminal justice and incarceration does not necessarily make it more humane. That's what I would take from it. The most uh, disturbing thing I think is, which is ironic given how much discussion we've had about it, but is the blocking technology. And because one of the things it does that we didn't talk about is if you are the person who has been blocked, all in other people is an amorphous blob. I mentioned this a little bit, but I don't know how that enables people to, I think removing people from society as a whole or enabling them, creating a technology that made us see certain people only as faceless white noise, probably we would have far worse, far worse outcomes than a lot more bad outcomes than good outcomes to be simplistic rather. Like, I don't think that would help. And 
on the scale of least dystopian to most dystopian, I would give it about a seven. I think it can always get worse. I was watching it and thinking of ways that it could be made worse. And I also think that given the technological limits of what we have, we actually have a lot of things that are similar to what's going on there. So it's bad, but could be way worse and is actually super close to where we are. So Chris, thanks so much for doing this. I really do hope that you will come back. Now that we've talked about this, I feel like I really want you to come back and talk about White Bear with me. Uh, Yeah, maybe we can get, get our other, our friend on too. That would be cool. Yes, let's do it. Let's just commit to it and do it. And in the meantime, try not to block each other. Okay. <laughs> Take care, Lee. Okay, thanks so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts. 